2019, an article was published in the New York Times. It was written by Lindsay Krauss. She wrote about Tommy Rivers, also known as Tommy Rivs, who's a professional endurance athlete. But what made this story so powerful is he'd been diagnosed with a rare form of lung cancer and had to undergo extensive treatment. But despite these health challenges, Riz wanted to compete in the upcoming New York City Marathon, an event he'd been training for. The article chronicles Riv's journey from his cancer diagnosis to his recovery, and then his participation in the 2019 New York City Marathon, which he finished in two hours, 29 minutes, and 38 seconds. And that collective experience changed his outlook on life and running. Yeah, I'm just stoked that I'm just still around, you know? Couldn't be better than this, you know? There's no way that it could be any better. It's as good as I could possibly ever hope that life would be, you know? But this isn't his story I'm about to tell. Because what I'm fascinated about is the impact that happens when someone you love gets a diagnosis like that, facing life or possible death. It wouldn't be him unless it was rare and aggressive. When hope seems distant, they believe, and so will I. You want to be around somebody that makes you a better person, makes you want to be the best version of yourself. Like from love comes strength. How does someone else's pain and journey back to recovery impact you? Does it make you stronger or weaker, grateful or bitter? Does it unlock memories you thought were locked away forever or unleash dreams of possibility? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Steph Catadell. She's the spouse of Tommy Rivs, the mother of the three girls, and has just written this powerful memoir called Everything All at Once. And this isn't just her side of the Tommy Rivs story. This is her story and one that you'll feel throughout. Steph Catadell, welcome to uh, Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much. So happy to be here today. I've struggled with how to do this show because there's really two strands that have to weave together to define who you are. One strand is your love for your dad, who died of lung cancer when you were barely a teenager. And the other is how those memories roared back when your husband learned he had a similar disease. You open your book as a seven-year-old. Your dad's driving you in a van to a hospital while you're struggling to breathe. Yeah, I've I've struggled struggled with chronic asthma since I was um, a little kid, and my dad struggled with asthma as well. And so, a lot of my memories growing up had to do with late night drives in a car and overnight hospital stays. And so, I started my my book with that story because I think it shows um, kind of the over underlying theme of my life, which was illness, hospital, but above anything else, it was love. And so I'm driving and, you know, I'm kind of scared because I can't breathe. And my dad just looks over at me and he's singing the Eagles and he puts a hand on my face. And I just remember feeling such incredible comfort. And I think it's just a testament to the kind of father and the kind of person he was. So I wanted to just start my story letting the readers, letting myself remember just what an incredible father I had. And if I don't say it enough, I encourage everybody to read this. I get books sent to me all the time and just in my capacity, I sometimes have to skim them. I read every word. You are a beautiful writer. And I'd like you to read a passage that you wrote. And this is this happens, I guess, six years later, and you're in the same van, but in a very different circumstance. I am 13 years old and my father is dying of lung cancer. I watch our city rush by us as he coughs and coughs and coughs. And I can still hear him cough. You never forget a sound like that. 
the kind that tears at your throat, the kind that sputters and drowns and leaves you gasping for breath on dry land. Your words are so powerful. Where did you get that gift of putting together prose where you just are so emotionally connected? I was in that van with you. Well, thank you so much. That means so much because I feel the words, but you never know if they're going to resonate with other people. I've always been a writer. I, I remember being six years old and taking out an encyclopedia of animals and writing short stories about animals. But I really think it wasn't until my husband got sick that it it unlocked some kind of deep emotion inside me that I think I had been pushing down for two decades since the loss of my father and when when Tommy got sick it it just cracked wide open and from there came that depth I think of emotion that you you might read in my words take us back to when your dad had let you know, I mean, this is the rock of your life. This is a person singing eagles and touching your face and letting you know everything's going to be all right. Had to sit down and tell the family that he has very serious lung cancer. My parents sat us down. Um, we had dinner every single night, um, six o'clock. We had a very traditional family. Um, my, my father sat us down and I was 13 years old at the time. He told us that he had stage four lung cancer that had metastasized throughout his entire body. But at the time, I didn't think that death for him was a possibility. I truly, truly believed that he would survive. He was this monolith of a man. You know, he still did marathons. He did handstand pushups. He was... Um, that coupled with the fact that I had been raised in the LDS faith, which essentially teaches you that God is an interventionist. So that if you have faith, if you pray, and if you're obedient, uh, you know, a God will descend and grant miracles. And so when I was sitting at that table that night and these really mortally weighted words were floating around, all I could think about was the incredible miracle that my father was about to receive. I completely denied any chance that he might pass away. As a family, when news like that happens, does somebody rise and sort of shoulder some of the strength your dad had? Or was it just everybody in a sense of denial? I'm just, my mom died of love cancer. And I'm just, I go, I'm going back to those times and wondering how we reacted as a family. I'm curious to know what was going on. Cause you're only 13. I mean, you're a kid. Yeah. Um, we all definitely handled it very differently. Um, my mother is from England. She's kind of the epitome of British stoicism. She's just the keep calm, carry on type. And so she had always, she just kind of plowed ahead and for better or worse, as though nothing was wrong. And I think that helped us in a lot of ways because it maintained some sense of normalcy. Um, I would say it was my older sister, Rachel, who, who rose up and, she had been a very rebellious teenager, um, but she she dropped out of CJEP to care for my dad alongside my mother. While my mother was tending to my father, she kind of became the matriarch of the family during that time. So everyone's roles kind of shifted. Um, my older brother was completely absent. Uh, he just, it was too painful for him. So he just was gone all the time. And then um, my little brother, Phil, he was 11, or I guess he was 10 at the time that he was diagnosed he too had had cancer. So um, I think he understood, but again, he was too young to fully understand. So your dad promises to fight his cancer, but it, 
it was a medical impossibility. As you said, it would spread throughout his body, he had a massive tumor in his lung, another in his brain. But at the same time, the way you describe it, I remember you something like handstand flips off the high diving board. This is somebody that wasn't just your father. This was somebody you were just so proud to be out in public with. Yeah, he truly was this monolith of a man. Like he really, really was. When I think of him, he was superhuman in my eyes. And of course, I was just a child. But when I talk to people still, his colleagues at work and his friends, he was really an exceptional human. He was he was not only physically strong, he was mentally tough, but he was also soft and kind and understanding. He always had the corniest dad jokes, making everyone laugh. And he really truly was uh, an exceptional person. And I don't think that's me just kind of deifying him you know, after his death. So um, I only have positive memories of my father, which I'm very, very lucky to say that. Your 14th birthday, you can barely scribble a card with your name and XOXO and you go to school, but you never see him again. No, what I think is incredible that I didn't, I didn't allow myself to think about for years was the fact that he um, well, the night he was diagnosed, he told each one of us that he would live to see each one of our birthdays again. And he was diagnosed October 26th, which was seven days after my 13th birthday. And um, he held on long enough to say happy birthday to me on my 14th birthday the next year and then went into a coma. So if that isn't a testament to the strength that he had and the willpower and the love that he had, I, I don't know what what more could be asked for. That was truly incredible. Um, so yeah, I left for school and I came back and he he had, was in a coma and he, he died um, three days later. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Steph Catadal. She has written a powerful memoir called Everything All at Once. We don't have a lot of time to get into your mom, and I encourage people to read the book because I love the fact that you just talked about her upbringing, you know, England, a rundown flat without heat or running water. Combine this Mormon religion. Three days after your dad dies, you talk about breaking one of the cardinal Mormon rules. You got drunk wearing one of your sister's tube tops and a short skirt to a party. I mean, was this just your way of saying your, your religion's BS, your, your miracle didn't happen, and I'm just ready to just say goodbye to it? Or, or is it just emotional grief? What do you think caused that? <laughs> the, the tube top days. I don't think my sister will ever forgive me for stealing all her clothes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, you know, it's interesting. At the time, I truly didn't correlate my decision to drink with my grief or my pain. I really thought I was just, I thought I was just making a teenage decision. Um, in some ways I was, but of course it was just fueled by my pain and my anger towards religion, my anger towards, you know, God, whatever. Um, and so at the time I didn't, I didn't even think about it. It was, I, I had dissociated so strongly from my, self and from my emotions that I, I, I really thought I was just making an autonomous decision to drink. Um, but it wasn't so. <laughs> and that drinking wasn't an anomaly. It became quite a pattern of escape, didn't it? Yeah, it became a crutch for me for sure. It was, I think looking back, it was an easy way for me to, um, escape my emotions and it became a habit, uh, to where I was drinking, three, four nights a week 
from the age of 14. Um, a lot of my friends were too, but I was always the one to take it to the next level to have, have one or two more drinks and to, you know, I was, I was that embarrassing friend, I would say probably back at that day, but it was all coming from anger and pain and rage. And then someone comes in your life, you know, you talked to this book, it's Matt, a Mormon elder and a missionary, and he leaves the church to be with you. Describe what that means, because for people not familiar with the Mormon church, it's first of all, just being an elder, he's taken on a certain vow of, of accountability, but his love for you is something he's willing to break that vow for. Yeah. So he was, I was uh, 15 when we met, he was 21, I believe, 20 or 21. And uh, he was on a mission. And in the LDS religion, when you're on a mission, you're, you devote two years of your life to um, very strict rules. So no relationship with members of the opposite sex. You can only talk to your family twice a year on the phone. I think they've changed the rules now. Um, but you're basically, uh, I guess a monk for, for those two years. And if you break any of those rules, you're sent home and your only job is to share the gospel and the religion with, with the world and to serve service and things like that. But, um, so he, we had formed a relationship in the, just at church every Sunday. And I think my mom was just really excited that in my wayward ways, I was still connecting with someone from the church. And because of the strict rules of the mission, she didn't think anything could or would happen. Um, but he showed up on my doorstep about six months after we met saying he was going to leave his mission to be with me. And I was like, okay, let's do this <laughs> at 16 years old. That's, you know, that's, that felt like a good decision at the time. And the paragraph that you end chapter four, describing life after your dad passed, can I get you to read that one as well? And so I burned. For years to come, rage would direct my every move, catalyzed by the failed expression of my faith. After my father's death, I boxed up faith, hope, and spirituality and labeled them rotten. Do not touch. And how did your mom come to terms with that? I mean, she lost her husband. Church is obviously very important to her. And now she's losing, in many ways, who you are because your beliefs are so different. She, Yeah. My mom was, I have to say, wonderful during that time, but I was so angry at the world and I needed somewhere to direct that anger and she was the easiest target. And so I, I was just nasty to her and I was selfish and I didn't once consider the fact that she was mourning her husband. All I could think about was that I was angry for not having a father. So, um, I think that she had dealt with my brother and sister who had both, you know, rebelled against the church and she had tried to come down hard on them and ground them and punish them. And that didn't work. So with me, she just kind of allowed me to express, I think, my pain and my anger. And I still knew she was disappointed, but she just met me with love looking back, that's what I can say with full honesty. She met me with love and understanding and I was just really not very kind to her <laughs> despite that, you know? That's a lot of guilt to deal with as you go on in age, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I carried a lot of that, I think. And um, in some ways the book is to me also a book for the love you have with your mom and, and your way of apologizing as well, isn't it? I, I'm so glad you read that. It's kind of between the lines, I think. It's not overt, but as I, I, I didn't realize that would be a theme in my book, but as I wrote, I saw her kindness throughout my whole life and her love and acceptance. 
And I didn't realize it until I wrote my story, how wonderful and how she had been exactly what I needed during that time. Steph, your story is one where you're running down a path marked with substance abuse, searching for love, but it turns for the better when you meet Tommy Rives. How did that all come about? I wish people could see your smile right now. <laughs> oh, Rips. Well, uh, we met, we were so young. I was 21. He was 22. Uh, we were both going to BYU, which is a, a Mormon college. My mom kind of not blackmailed me. She said she'd pay for my school if I went to a Mormon school. So I, I said, I can make that work. And, uh, we were at two different, completely different places in our life at the time. I was, I had found this covert partying faction within the, BYU student body. And he was just returned from his own mission. Uh, just a really good guy. And so we crossed paths, but never really um, interacted until we walked into the same anthropology class one semester. And it was just like, met eyes. And I just, I don't know, there was something so different and wonderful about him. And how soon did you know that you're meeting your soulmate? And this was a person that you would be with forever. It was pretty quick. Uh, he offered me some pretzels and hummus. And then I just knew <laughs> that was the way to my heart. And we, after we, we first met, we, we kind of hung out every single day and we were married a year, a year after we met. Um, and so I was 22. He was 23 when we, when we got married. And when you research Tommy Rives, which is his nickname, but everybody in the, in the running world knows him that way, ultra marathoner, but described as a body more suited to be a linebacker. Why was he so passionate about this sport? Cause he sounds like he's an athlete that could have done almost anything. Yeah, he could have, and he could have probably been a, a great footballer or anything, but, um, he is the most deeply feeling human I have ever met. He feels everything so deeply. Um, and most importantly, he feels for other people so deeply. And for him from a young age, running was always a way to process and metabolize those feelings. And if he wasn't outside moving, he, he, he would always say that those feelings were rotting inside him. They just kind of stuck inside him. And so he needed a conduit to, to kind of metabolize them and running was what he chose. I mean, I think that the reason that we're drawn to endurance athletics is is because it serves as a, a skill building experience so that we can then take what we learn the skills and the strengths and then apply it to actual real life and we're constantly reminding ourselves you know day after day after day that we're in charge you know and then when you know you're faced with challenges in personal life or daily life it just becomes second nature you know my guest today is steph katadal and the nasty cough of someone with lung cancer is something she can never forget when we return, Steph hears the cough again. And it wasn't in her nightmare. It was from her husband's lungs. It's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. Recent Ipsos survey, sponsored by RBC Royal Trust, reveals that over one half of Canadian adults do not have a will. And that number jumps to 66% in the 34 to 54 age group. This January, take the time to create a will. Protect your family, your wishes, and your legacy. And if you already have one, it's a great time to review it. Find out more, rbc.com slash royaltrust. Having a will matters to you, your family, and to RBC. Leave a legacy, not a burden. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Steph Catadell. She's the spouse of Tommy Rives, the mother of the three girls, and has just written this powerful memoir called Everything All at Once. And this isn't just her side of the Tommy Rives story. This is her story. 
So he chose a sport that he becomes very accomplished at, but it's not one that makes a lot of money. You're starting to have children, mouths to feed. What did you two do to just survive and keep a roof over your head? It was just surviving. I think back on those times and they were just so sweet and simple. Uh, We were living in a tiny 800 square foot home that our heater was like this grate in the floor and you had to hop over it because it was so hot. And um, he was in grad school. I was writing my master's thesis and then we were serving tables at night. So we were switching off between student and student you know, wait, waiter, um, and the evening. And we had this two year old. So we were just trying to do it all. And somehow it worked. That family grew though. Yes. Um, shortly after we had, um, Iris and then eventually we had Poppy. So we have three daughters. One night you wake up in June as you write to the sounds of a massive and violent storm crashing down on your roof, rattling your windows. But above that sound, you hear something else. You call it the melody of my adolescence remastered. Unbelievable words, but share with the audience what you heard and what did you feel? Tommy had been sick for about a week and we we thought it might be COVID. So he was sleeping in our basement and and I woke to this hacking cough and it took me straight back to my father's cough, obviously, when he had lung cancer himself. And it's like it's embedded in your DNA it, it speaks of ambulance rides and terror and sadness. And all of those emotions came flooding back. And I woke up in a panic thinking that I was having a nightmare, but realizing that it was my husband coughing. And that was the first time in his week-long illness that I was truly scared. COVID's happening. This is this ultra marathoner, endurance athlete. He says, I'm not going to go to the hospital. I'm not going to take a bed. What kind of pain do you think he was in? Talking to the doctors, he must have been in excruciating pain. But the thing with Tommy and a lot of endurance athletes is part of the sport is athletic and the other part is mental. And he had trained his mind to withstand incredible amounts of stress and pain through for the past you know 20 years of his life. I've seen him blackout at finish lines. I've seen him stumble past, you know, mile 23 and finish the last three miles in a stupor. He just has more resolve and grit than anybody. And so I think he was in a lot of pain, but it wasn't unusual for him. One of the races he does is I think runs at night through the Grand Canyon or something. Yeah. And he runs a hundred mile races and, you know, does them in what, I don't know, 16 hours or something like that without stopping. So he's just truly one of those, you know, superhuman people that just knows how to be in pain. How do you move from him just being in the basement to finally convincing him, it's time to go to the hospital. Something is serious. It's, this isn't just pain from a, your last run. This is something that's taking over your body. Yeah. Well, he knew something was going on. He thought either he had COVID or pneumonia, but because um, Flagstaff, where we lived, was a hot spot, he didn't want to take anyone's bed. And he had convinced uh, a doctor and a telehealth visit to prescribe him um, like an antibiotic and a and a steroid that they do for um, COVID patients. And so he thought he could treat himself at home, but uh, I came home one day to find him unconscious and blue with um, blood around his mouth. And that's when he finally, well, and it's still, I still had to convince him at that point that he needed to go to the hospital. I put a pulse oximeter on his finger, which reads your blood oxygen levels. And it was 71%. And because he is a physical therapist, he understands the body very well. And he knew that that was a medical emergency. And so that's what finally got him to the hospital. When he gets to the hospital, and I mean, there's obviously a lot happening, but one of the 
the most frightening things is they put him in a an induced coma as his only hope of survival. How did that bring back memories for you with your dad? They must have just roared back that this I'm going to lose the next another man that meant so much to me. It was a really interesting time because I should have been feeling despair and anger. And all I felt was hope, which was very, very surprising for me because I had written off hope and inspiration and all of these things two decades earlier when my father passed away. I had written them off. I Life was completely empirical, science-based. There was nothing more, but I couldn't help but feel this incredible hope brewing inside me. And I didn't know where it was coming from. Um, and also when my, when my father was in the coma for those two days, when I was near him, I knew he was gone. There was no sense of fight. It was like, he was just slowly slipping away, but with ribs with Tommy, I call him ribs. Um, when I was able to visit him for the first time in the Flagstaff hospital, when he was sedated, there was this sense that he was fighting hard and I could feel it when I was close to him. And I think that allowed me to continue on with this hope I felt. Steph, the uh, the doctors don't really know what Rives, as you call him, Tommy Rives has. They even tell you that the end is near. You still refuse to give up. How did you challenge a medical institution that often when they say, you know, they do the neuro thumbs down, it is over because they haven't got the passion and you kept everybody believing. So how did that all work? I had a a lot of his nurses were um, saying that the doctors have given up, but we feel like there's still a chance. We think that we don't want to give up on him yet. So you need to advocate for him. Because he was pretty well known in the endurance athletics world, I was able to send I, I, on Instagram, I posted, does anyone have any resources that he could be transferred to another hospital that might care for him? And within an hour of posting that, I had hundreds of messages from around the country offering to take a chance on him. But it was more complicated than that because we needed an oncologist. We needed a cardio surgeon. Uh, we needed a pulmonologist, all willing to take his case at the same at the same hospital when it looked like there was no chance and somehow um a man came forward he was a hospital director for a phoenix hospital and he said i've within 2 hours he had found an entire team saying that they wanted to take a chance on him but that's not always the case with the statistics nowadays that doctors like to have more success than failure to take something on like this it truly is a commitment well and that's what even his cardiac surgeon who uh treated him as well as his pulmonologist both said they were putting their not their careers on their line, but the reputations on the line, because all of their colleagues said, don't do this. You're going to lose him. And then it's going to be all over the news because he's a high profile case. And so just, just don't do it. But they had been following him, his story for years, his running story. And so they knew that if anyone could do it, it would be him. They put him on this MCO machine and it's, and this team really goes to work. And you get a text from the doctor one morning saying, Riz is awake. Come in ASAP. And I was mesmerized by how you described, no one told me what waking up would look like. I wasn't prepared. You know, you were probably going in hoping to see like Disney would treat it. The person's in the hospital. He's all cleaned up. You didn't, that's not what you found when you were there. No, I, I had no idea what waking up would look like. And I said it in my book, nothing could prepare you for it. And looking back, that still was probably the most traumatic experience of the entire illness. Um, I did. I walked in hoping, thinking that his eyes would meet mine and he would, know that what I had done for him and that we had rallied to save his life. And I walked in to find him 
His eyes were these jaundiced yellow slits staring vapidly into the air. And I said, you know, hey, and he didn't respond. He just laid there. And it was it was really disturbing. And it really made me wonder why they don't why they don't prepare loved ones better for this kind of thing. Um, It was the only time I was truly disappointed, I think, in the entire journey. As we talk about his fight, you know, they're saying that his heart rate stayed at 130. Everybody's saying it's impossible he's still alive, that he didn't go into cardiac arrest, or he could survive with so little oxygen in your blood. Maybe your spiritual faith is being destroyed, but you must have incredible faith in mind over matter. I do. And and he he would be less likely to say this than I would. He doesn't like to credit himself for anything he did. He likes to say it was all the doctors and all the people rallying around him. But when I, I sat by him day after day, and I could just see even in his sedation that he was fighting. His body had been trained his whole life for this exact moment. And, you know, there was something spiritual in that, in that I could see in retrospect that he had been preparing his whole life for this, even if he didn't know it. And it it was just truly miraculous. And I don't use that word lightly. I don't like the word miracle, but it was miraculous to see his body withstand what he what he did in the hospital. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I made the conscious decision that I was going to be done, that I didn't want to fight whatever was pulling me away anymore, that I didn't have the strength to fight it anymore. And Steph uh, nudged me, and she pointed, and I could see in the distance um, my girls. You don't have a choice. My guest is Steph Cutadal. Her memoir, Everything All at Once, is gripping, it's beautifully written, it's candid, and it's raw. How has all of this changed you? Other than for the fact that now there is that sort of reawakening of some sense of spirituality, whether that was a, a divine intervention or just one hell of a fighter and, and Tommy Riz, but how's it changed you? I think in some ways I'm a lot stronger and in other ways I am more broken, but I think I've learned to accept all of me, the broken bits and the strength as one. And in accepting all of me, I'm able to move forward in life with more love for myself and to just accept life, be grateful for it. I'd say gratitude above all else. You know, the mundane things that I used to think were just boring and tedious, like having morning coffee with ribs or doing the morning school drop-offs with the kids are now just beautiful events just for the fact that we can do them together and and that my children have a father. And I remember in the hospital wanting to hold on to that feeling of awe and gratitude for life. And it's been over two years and I, I still have it. I still feel in awe of life. And Tommy, I mean, going for his PhD, physiotherapy, wanting to help others. How, how did this all change him? Because he's still running at times walking, but he still wants to be out there. Yeah, he is truly incredible. And again, he is the last person to give himself any credit, um, which makes him even more lovable, of course. But um, he went from running, you know, 100 mile races through the desert to he can run about 20 seconds now without and then has to stop and get his catch his breath and, you know, reoxygenate his blood. It's really hard for him. He gets really frustrated, but he still gets out there and he still does it. And he still 
expresses gratitude for the fact that he even can move because he's here and he's alive and he's a father and a husband. And I think it's helped him to slow down and not look for the next challenge, but just enjoy where he's at, even if it's hard sometimes where he's at. And did he get a better sense of what you did behind the scenes after reading your book? He didn't know most of what had happened to him because he was unconscious for 80% of his treatment. And so he didn't know how close to death he had been because I never told him even when he woke up. He realized just how loved he was. Um, I don't think he realized before how much people truly loved, not him because he was a runner, had abs and was, you know, muscled and attractive, but people loved the core of him because he is a truly good, kind person. And I, I think and I hope that he's able to see that now. And if I can ask you to read one more passage from your book, it's the final passage, which I actually uh, broke down in tears when I read. So I'd love you to try to read it because I'll probably cry if I tried. Hi, Dad. I'm sorry I didn't hear you before. I can hear you now, in the spaces between, in that very real place I've come to know so well. It was you all along. There's so many people that you wrote this book for. I think for you, therapy, but it's also an incredible love letter to your dad as well. Yeah. And again, I didn't realize that it would be as I started to write the book. And I started to see all the ways that he had been present, whether in spirit or just in memory um, throughout Riv's treatment. But then I started to see all the ways he had been present throughout my entire life after he had died. And it was something I didn't allow myself to see even 20 years after his death, because I was still so hurt by his loss. But the book was truly healing to write because it it's it made me see how he had been there the whole way. I just, I chose not to see him or hear him. You know, Steph, I always end with my three takeaways. And the first is, there's another endurance athlete in your family, and it's you. I want to think of your brother's cancer, losing your dad, uh, trying to find out who you were, meeting Rivs, hearing that cough again, never giving up, never stopping feeling. You know, that's the 90th mile of that 100-mile race. You're running it internally and emotionally, maybe not physically. But I just think it's incredible what you've gone through and the outlook you have on life. Because a lot of people would be very negative and bitter and angry. And you're the opposite. You're almost... uh angelic, if you wanted to use a spiritual term. The second thing is your absolute love for Rivs. You know, when you first came on, and the sad thing about a podcast is you just lit up. To me, that's an extraordinary love affair. And it's a love affair, I think, forged because you were both all in from day one, from that first hummus and pretzels, and you continue to be all in. And then the third thing is my takeaway is how powerful writing has been to help you tackle those demons that were inside you that, you know, that you first tried to tackle with alcohol and tube tops and running away with some elder and just trying to do fighting with your mom, doing anything to just yell and say, I'm pissed off. And instead, through those words, you provided such an incredible light for people. So I hope the people listening do read your book. I hope you continue to write. You're just an absolutely beautiful human being, and I'm uh, so honored to join me on Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. I really enjoyed my time. Thank you. 
Joining me now is Carol Liebert. She's a director at RBC Insurance. Her DNA is her mother was a nurse for 45 years. She was a nurse. And the last time we chatted, she just talked about the sense of being there for her clients. This case, Stephanie Catadell, or Steph, it's really a story about her and her husband and having to make mission critical decisions, finding a way to keep him going. And she again talks about the importance of having people on her side, people that believe, people that have hope. What stories can you share with us about how the power of positive thinking can sometimes be the tiebreaker between life and death, between recovering with a positive attitude versus living with, in a life of despair? Her story is, Claudia's story is, is so common. Cancer is not discriminating. None of us get up in the morning and think, you know, hey, we're going to experience a, a life-threatening illness at, at any point in time. And when it does, it, it really can devastate families. I think one of the, the things that we have always prided ourselves on is when, our, when individuals come to us, we listen. They want you to hear where they're living, the pain that they're in. And then they want you to ask, what can I do to support you? I have seen clients come through the door with stage four cancers and are still surviving today, who we thought would never survive and are still surviving today. I have one lady that we moved from our extended, from our active unit, because she's now has been in stage four cancer for many, many years. Her expected survival rate was five years. Now it's been 10, 15 years and she's still alive. She believed in the power of positive thinking. There are people who, because they believe that they have it in them to survive, will do it. That positive thought will be healing for them. And this is what happens to most of our clients when we support them, when we say, hey, is, we're here for you. What do you want from us? Is it navigating the healthcare? Is it finding that support that is not available in Canada, that may be available outside of Canada? Is that helping you with your diet, with your exercise? Is that helping you navigate the healing journey? How do you personally deal with the trauma that you're taking in? Because from what I've understood, healthcare workers in your situation, you're very much an emotional healthcare worker. How do you find a way to compartmentalize it and then continue with your life with a sense of positivity and possibility? I know when I leave, when I leave that setting where for most people it's living in turmoil and trauma, I have the safety, the love, the support of family and friends who come alongside me and provide me with that inner strength that I need, Tony. We need to have those people around us. I am very aware of the, just the trauma that mental health or not being aware of your mental health can have on, on people. And so I'm very much aware of, um, you know, checking with my mental health. How am I doing today? How am I feeling today? What do I need today? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling um, I'm unable to cope today because I'm really overthinking something or the burden of someone else is, is, is really getting to me? I'm able to let it go. And, let, and be embraced by my family. How does your mom feel? 44 years, retired nurse. You were a nurse. She must be very proud of, instead of bringing this to the bedside, you're bringing this to the emotional side of a family. That must make her very proud that her daughter's carrying the medical torch, but doing it in a way that just has so much, brings so much hope and resources to bear. For her, there was such pride in what she did, and she loved being with patients and being there for them, and and being being able to deliver not only the mental health support that she could, but also give them physical healing. 
And so she was really, really concerned that I had, I was leaving that behind because she didn't really quite yet understand what this journey would look like for me. I can tell you now that she is my top cheerleader and supporter. It's incredible to see the light in her eyes when we, when I, you know, when, you know, when we talk about some of the wonderful things that we're able to do for clients in this space now and being on the receiving end of that for her right now because she's waiting for surgery. Um, I see her light fading and when we are able to talk about that and when I'm able to help her navigate and when I'm able to get her the help that she needs and she is as she looked at me recently she said daughter I'm so proud of you Carol I'm so proud of you and your heart roars and I think that's what this show's about you can talk about insurance all you want but what people want to know that there's somebody that absolutely cares thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters thank you Tony so great to be here Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC Fridays join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.